Welcome to another Monday on Facts. We're back after taking a week off, much needed week, perhaps needed two weeks, but uh, we'll go along with it anyway. We're really excited about the opportunity to present quite the controversial discussion about Nicaea. In fact, in most debates that I've done with atheists, skeptics, Muslims, and surprisingly, even Christians or those who profess to be Christians have based our canon somewhere in the council, the council of Nicaea. And one of the things we want to do is answer the question, did the council of Nicaea around 325 AD come together, sit down, choose books, and say, these are in, these are out. We don't want these. We do want these. And then there was debates that took place because that's some of the controversy that comes into play here is that some sort of debate took place and the best debaters won. And these books were put aside and rejected. And these books were accepted because they had better defense. As we've been engaging the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over the last few weeks, if you've missed those, please go back and watch those episodes. One of the things that we're looking for is authentic letters or writings to churches and or individuals, say Luke's gospel to Theophilus. One of the things that we're looking for is, can it be traced to eyewitness accounts? What sets those four gospels apart from the rest? There were many gospel accounts, many we do not have today that we know from church history and others writing about, but there are some that still survive that are not considered canonical. And many of those were discovered just recently in the early 1900s. And we're going to go through some of those gospel accounts together over the next few weeks. The gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary, the gospel of truth, the gospel of Philip, the gospel of Peter, letters that were transcribed under the name of Peter to the apostle Philip uh, after the resurrection account. We're going to look at that one as well. One of the things we want to do is make sure that we are not just dismissing books or dismissing texts and saying, we don't like them, they're not a part of our tradition. The real question we're asking is, are they apostolic? Are they based on eyewitnesses who were with Jesus? Because they're the only ones truly qualified to write about what Jesus said and did. They were the only ones there. Um, And if certain books do not contain that eyewitness testimony, Uh, At best, they're inaccurate accounts, but may be valuable. And we'll talk about some of those as we go through. On the other hand, there may be some that are brought to our attention that are completely heretical. One of the biggest teachings that permeated the world by the second and third century was a teaching called Gnosticism. It came into the first century, but it really made its way in written form in the second and third century. So we're going to look at the Gnostic Gospels as well. But today, one of the things we want to do is highlight this controversy about Nicaea. And I'll go ahead and pull that up on the screen. And the question that we want to ask ourselves is, did Nicaea choose our four Gospels? Did they sit there and say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in? Thomas is out. Mary is out. Judas is out. Philip is out. What did they do? Did that happen? Is there record from The archives that we have that have survived or those who are part of the council of Nicaea, some were there as bishops who were voting members. Others were there as scribes, learning, taking notes like Athanasius, who was not a bishop at the time. He became one later in Alexandria. He had his own collection of books, but 
he was there listening, uh, could not vote. He was not a bishop, but he was there and he listened and he heard. Did these guys make comment that would lead us to believe that this is what took place? And if they didn't, where in the world did this rumor come from? Those are the things that we're going to examine today. So let's take a look uh, into our screen here. And if you cannot read this because you're listening on Spotify or Apple or the many other platforms that uh, we are on, on the audio side of things, I will do my best to read slowly and carefully as I always attempt to do so. And if you can't read the screen because you're on an iPhone or smartphone and you cannot see the words, just follow along as I read. So the thing that needs to be asked, places where the Gospels were used as canonical before Nicaea. I think this is a question that we need to look into and a statement we need to examine. Where was the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John utilized and seen as, and what did they believe about them before Nicaea happened? So if the Gospels ended by the end of the, the first century, which I believe they did, I know some would say they didn't, but even if it was in the second century, partially, we have to ask ourselves this question. Um, what was going on before Nicaea with those four Gospels? Who was using them? What did they say about them? Was this something that was debated and they finally just at Nicaea said, look, you guys can't agree on this, so we're going to make a decision here, now and forever, to finalize this situation. Is that what took place? Uh, or should we examine the early usage into the first century of these four Gospels and see how they were utilized and how they were believed and used by these writers to their audiences of faith, Christian communities, what did they say about them? So let's look at some of these. First, let's look at the scripture, quoting scripture. Uh, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, we have two quotes, one of an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 25, 4, and one of Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Now, I'll read the verse to you out of the New King James. It says this, for the scripture... The scripture says, this goes in, uh, it's actually verse 17 and 18 here uh, of 1 Timothy, quoting what we find Old and New Testament equally. Catch the words here. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, that phrasing is from the mouth of Jesus, word for word, in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Now, there's interesting statements here. One, we need to examine this. Uh, there is a statement here that these two pieces of statements are one scripture. The scripture is being described in two manners, an Old Testament verse and a quote out of Luke's gospel. He's calling them both scripture. There are two equal clauses representing one noun, and that noun is scripture. So both are being defined as equal clauses to the proper noun of association, which is the word scripture. Now, I've heard, in fact, twice in the last year or so, one against a Muslim and one against a Christian, uh, believe it or not, uh, but he's a progressive Christian, who made the comment to me, yeah, but that could have been oral tradition that was being quoted. And my statement uh, is the one I'm going to make here on the show. He did not say, as it is said. He said, as it says in the scripture, the graphe is the Greek word there. And that means a writing. 
These are written texts. So 1 Timothy, which some deny is Paul, and I believe it clearly is, but in 1 Timothy, if he's quoting, he's not quoting an oral tradition from the two. He's quoting two equal clauses of written text, one from the Pentateuch or the Torah and one from the Gospel of Luke. Now, this is consistent with what we looked at when we talked about Luke's gospel being Paul's gospel. He made the comment, according to my gospel, he said it in 2 Timothy, he said it in Romans, and the church fathers had held, and I showed you through the testimony of Eusebius and others, that they believed that meant the gospel of Luke. And we showed how gospel of Luke could have been before these other writings like Romans and 2 Timothy. This being 1 Timothy, it would make sense that he's going to quote Luke as a place of reference off of the lips of Jesus. But he had no problem associating both phrases, the words of Jesus from Luke's gospel, equal to scriptural mandate as the words off of Moses' pen and words in Deuteronomy gave them equal precedence, not secondary. They're equal clauses describing the same noun. Now, some would say, well, perhaps that's Matthew. Okay, but even if it's Matthew being quoted there, you still have the same thing. A gospel account's being quoted by a first century document like First Timothy. But the reason I do not believe it is Matthew, I believe it's Luke, it's not just because of what I said about people believing that Paul uh, was the author and the the authority, if you would, behind Luke's gospel, but because there's really one word difference in the Greek and it's word for word the same in Luke and is one word difference in Matthew. So it would seem like he is quoting Luke on two planes. But what we find here is that first century documents are quoting the gospel account of Luke as scripture, not an oral tradition. The written text is already being perceived as scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, which 2 Peter is a controversial book, we will get to the disputable books later. Uh, I promise you it'll be some time, but we'll get there. But the writer, which I do believe is the authority Peter, may be a scribe or an amanuensis writing for him, but he is connecting the reader of his book to the scenery in the synoptic gospels of Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration reminding that audience and assuming that the audience already knows the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. And the only way to know that story is to go back to the synoptic accounts and look at what they said when they were there seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus and Peter spoke up at that time and said, we should make a tabernacle for all three. The only way you're going to know what he's saying in second Peter is if you have read one of the gospel accounts. So there's an assumption that at that time as well, they were familiar. So let's leave the biblical realm. And there's other places that could be insinuated. For example, in the book of Revelation, he uses terminology straight, what it appears to me to be from John's gospel. Now, somebody could say John's gospel was copying the apocalypse, but it seems like based on structure and the organization of the fathers of where they placed both those books, the apocalypse of John followed the gospel of John. And when I say the apocalypse of John, I, I, I'm referring to the book of what we call Revelation. Uh, I, I would rather call it the apocalypse uh, because that's all the word is. Uh, Revelation is translated from that. Uh, but it is the apocalypse of John. But there are other faulty books with the apocalypse and apostles' names on it. There's an apocalypse of Paul. There's an apocalypse of Peter. Uh, and there's even one of John. So uh, not to confuse the two. But here, let's move past the biblical text, quoting other biblical texts, 
and look at First Clement. Now, what we're going to do here is we're going to spend some time a little bit in my dissertation, or at least the data that was in my dissertation. Uh, one of the things that I sought to do from Codex H, which is a manuscript in Jerusalem, containing some of the letters that were missing in history for a while or only fragmented uh, and within that is First Clement and the letters of Ignatius and the Didache. The most important one that's probably in that manuscript that people really focus on is the Didache because we have First Clement and other manuscripts uh, like Codex A. Uh, we have other languages conveying at least portions of First Clement. Uh, and First Clement is a very important letter. Now, we believe through the testimony of the early fathers that First Clement is likely uh, Clement of Rome, who would have been with Paul the Apostle. He was actually mentioned by name in the epistle of Philippians. Uh, I believe it is the same guy, and Eusebius said that it was alleged to be the case. I think it's the same person. He would have been mentored by Peter and by Paul, which makes sense because he is the earliest testimony of Paul and Peter's martyrdom. He mentions both of them dying for their faith in Christ in that letter. Uh, and he's writing from Rome to the church at Corinth. And uh, he spent some time going through multiple admonitions from the Old and New Testament scriptures. Now, some would place Clement pretty early, far earlier than I ever would, 60 to 70 AD. I do not believe that is the case. I believe First Clement would have been written at the very end of the first century, uh, probably around the time of Revelation, if not a little bit after the book of Revelation. But I do believe it is late first century. Uh, and, and there's fun discussions within. In fact, uh, I was on Dr. James White's program, uh, The Dividing Line, and uh, he let me come on and we had an hour and a half discussion on some of my dissertation work on First Clement. If you missed that, you can find it on YouTube or when you follow Dr. James White. Uh, but here, what we can focus on is some of the data that I really pulled out from First Clement when it comes to just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, First Clement, he quoted the book of Hebrews more than any other New Testament book. And then the Psalms were definitely his top priority in the Old Testament. But when it came to the Gospels, he did quote from them. Uh, and he and, and the letter is probably about the size of First or Second Corinthians that we have today, give or take some sections and words. But it's a pretty good sized letter. But there's a lot of scripture. Most of his instructions came from Old and New Testament scripture. And he quotes Matthew six times. He quotes him in, he quotes Matthew 5, 7, Matthew 6, 14, 7, 2, 15, 8, 18, 6, and 26, 24. He was at the end of the first century giving faith-based instructions on Christian conduct and faith living for the gospel communities in Corinth, instructing them through the testimony of Matthew's gospel. He also quoted out of Mark's gospel, though one time he made a clear citation from Mark chapter 10, verse 27, utilizing the information he had from that account, quoting it. Now, part of my dissertation work was to categorically put their quotations in four categories. And the reason for that is because our categories can get mixed up. We can say, well, they quoted them. Yeah, but how did they quote them? Uh, my first section is, is that it was a direct citation, meaning you could tell that they were copying either word for word from memorization or really close word for word on a written text, which would be similar to some of the manuscripts that we have. That was the fun part. Because once I extrapolated it out of there, there was taking it and looking at it and saying, all right, 
are they quoting that closer to a Byzantine text or to what we have in our Nestle and Allen critical editions? And so I got to do some comparison in those things as well. But looking at them, what I found was quite fascinating is that there was different ways that they quoted, even books like Matthew. They didn't quote Matthew the same way every time. And you can almost see when the early church writers were trying to quote from memory or my favorite indirect citations is what I called it. They're paraphrasing. They're going off of what they remembered and they're just making the point and then they're going on from their point. Sometimes it almost appears like they're sitting there with a manuscript open saying, okay, all right, so it's worded this way. Jesus said this, and then they'll write it almost verbatim the way that we see it in our Greek texts. On the other hand, they're sometimes they're very loose, but it's very clear they're taking the principle and then they're applying it to their audience as well. So understand when I'm giving you these numbers. And then I also did a third category of partial citation, which is they literally just took one-liners uh, instead of entire phrase or paragraph. They took one-liners. And then I did potential. I tried to be as fair as I could if it was unclear and I really wanted it to be, but I couldn't feel confident enough to do it. I put it in a potential category. Uh, in this circumstance, there was no potentials. Matthew was six times in the first three categories, which are directly connected to Matthew. There's no doubt. Mark's gospel, one time. Uh, Luke's gospel, twice. Uh, chapter 6, verse 38, and chapter 8, verse 5 of Luke is quoted by First Clement. So Clement was at least familiar, and he is more than likely familiar with John's gospel, but keep in mind, I believe he was writing not far after, not far after John, so it makes sense the circulated Gospels at that point would have been more so the synoptics, which is why he quoted them. And what you find pretty quickly, and you're going to find in this next one, the Didache, or literally the uh, the teaching of the apostles is the idea there, is Matthew is probably the most well-circulated Gospel out there. And if you remember me talking about Matthew's Gospel in our program, one of the things that you'll remember is that I made comment to the fact that Matthew is called the Gospel of the Lord in the Didache. Because it is my belief that the original gospel of Matthew was done in Hebrew Aramaic, earliest of the gospels, uh, sent to the Jews who were newly converted out of Judaism, as we see from the testimony of the fathers, later in the 60s, uh, based on what we know of what Irenaeus said of it being done while Paul and Peter were evangelizing in Rome, which would have to be after 60 AD, uh, because they were never there together until after that point. Uh, I believe that the group, the apostolic surviving group from Jerusalem issued a published Greek text, which would have been a group effort and group, group eyewitness testimony, more so than just Matthew's handwritten eye testimony. Uh, but it would have included the majority of his because he would have apparently been the scribe of the group. Uh, and that makes sense. He was a tax collector. But he published this gospel on behalf of the apostles. And I find it interesting that by the end of the first century, they're not saying this is Matthew's gospel as much as it's the gospel of the Lord, almost as if it was a group effort of eyewitnesses speaking on behalf of their remembrance of the Lord. And you see that phrase frequently in the Didache. But let's talk about the Didache. Um, and just to prove not only was Matthew's gospel um, important, it was the primary gospel for quotation in this letter. Now, this letter was written uh, claiming to be apostolic authorities. Uh, do we know? I, no idea. Some would place this gospel around, or this uh, letter around 70. Once more, I'm more comfortable with it between 80 and 100. 
Um, but again, it's first century. Most would agree it's around the end of the century. But it's quoting the Gospels. And just to show you how many, look at Matthew, if you're able to, on the screen. Matthew is quoted 25 times. Now, the Didache is not some giant document. It's probably about the size of maybe a little smaller than Colossians. And it quotes Matthew 25 times. And there's potentials because I could not decide. And I'll tell you, actually, I believe they're Matthew, but I could not decide. And the reason is they quote Matthew quoting the Torah. And it's hard to tell if they're quoting the Torah or Matthew because in the Septuagint, the wording in both Matthew and the Septuagint are identical. So it's difficult to say if the Didache had Matthew's script in front of them or the script of the Torah in the Septuagint. It's it's difficult to say, so I couldn't decide. I had to leave it ambiguous. Three of those four potentials are a situation like that. So, and honestly, because of the using the usage of Matthew so much, I'm leaning to the fact that it was probably Matthew's text in front of them they were quoting, but they also quoted from the Torah, so they obviously had access to it as well. Or they may not have cared. They just picked one. But there's four more potentials. It's up to possibly 29 times in a short letter. They're quoting Matthew. Chapter 5 was the most dominant. Verse 5, verse 26, verse 33, verse 39, verse 41. Twice they quoted verse 44, verse 46, verse 47. Chapter 6, 5, chapter 6, 9 through 13, an entire section. Chapter 7, 6, 7, 12, 10, 10, two different times. Chapter 21, verse 9, 22, 37, 22, 39, 23, 39, 24, 10, 24, 13, 24, 30, 24, 31, 24, 42, 28, 19. And potentially 540 and three different times, chapter 19, verse 18. That's a lot. <laughs> so, so how did they, claiming to the apostles, instructing them how to do Eucharist, baptism, kind of giving a little bit of an apocalyptic ending there, kind of a weird ending, but a really good read. Good instruction. One you should check out for sure. There's translations of it on the internet. But looking at the Didache, it is clear that their instruction and their theology was based from a Matthean gospel account. They weren't just quoting some tradition. I mean, there are numerous phrases. Take, for example, chapter 6, verse 9 through 13 in Matthew is quoted that whole section almost ver- Verbatim in Matthew's gospel, verbatim. There's a few differences from our Greek manuscripts today. It's closer uh, to, uh, believe it or not, a Byzantine more so reading than it is uh, what we have in the critical editions with the longer endings of sections. But nonetheless, and by the way, it is still a little bit different, but it's closer. The point of the matter is, is they're clearly quoting and writing scripted words from another manuscript. So that needs to be taken into consideration. Five times they quote Luke, chapter 6, verse 29, on two occasions, chapter 6, verse 30, chapter 6, verse 32, and chapter 12, verse 35. They were very familiar with Luke's account as well, which makes sense. It's an apostolic letter. Luke's from an apostolic source, Paul the Apostle. It makes sense. And potentially the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 24, um, I really wanted it to be John and say, this is definitely John, but it's so close that I had to land with the potential. But we have an apostolic gospel, without doubt. Look at the numbers for Matthew. How about Polycarp? 
So we, we look at these different accounts. We have an apostolic document called the Didache. Uh, we have Clement, who was trained by Paul and Peter. And we also have Polycarp. Now, Polycarp was a disciple of John. Uh, John the Apostle ordained him, left him at Smyrna to be bishop there. And he trained Irenaeus, uh, who you've heard me mention on numerous occasions. Now, I have done extensive work on Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I have written documents on that as well, but he quotes the scripture quite a bit as well, including the gospels. He quotes Matthew six times. He quotes chapter five. Again, chapter five and six of Matthew are very popular in the early church. Chapter five, verse three, verse 10, verse 44. And then chapter six, verse 13, seven, one through two, 26, verse 41. So Polycarp trained by John does not quote any other gospel account, doesn't quote all these other extra biblical gospels. Clement doesn't quote extra biblical. There are no citations from unknown document sourced material of like the gospel of Mary and Judas that come later. There, there, there is no sourced material. They're only quoting when they quote from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or all four or two or one or three they do not quote any other gospel accounts as authoritative information about the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. It's undisputed. Matthew, again, being the primary. Mark chapter 9, verse 5 is quoted. Luke chapter 1, verse 6 is quoted. And you say, well, wait a minute. Hold on. If Polycarp was trained by John, does he quote John? And the answer is no. And I want to talk about why I, I want you not to freak out about that, because it's a letter about the size of our Philippians. And I don't want us to get tripped up here and go, wait a minute, why isn't he quoting John? Because his goal in writing that letter to the Philippians wasn't to go, I wonder how many verses, and I understand verses were not invented until much later, but bear with me. How many sections and writings of this apostle can I fit into one letter? He's addressing a church with issues. His source of authority was not his own as a bishop as much as it was the authoritative text he was quoting to his audience, both Old and New Testament. And so because he didn't quote John does not mean he wasn't familiar with John or that, well, if he's trained, why not quote John's gospel? Because what he quoted from Matthew, particularly in most of those cases, John does not record from the teachings of Jesus. Same with Mark and especially with Luke there. So it may not have been relevant, but he was obviously familiar with Johann in writings. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, even though he does not quote John, he was not unfamiliar with the writings because he quotes from 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 through 3. And all their church fathers that we've read thus far have clearly associated 1 John and the gospel writer of John as the same John. Now there's some question about 2 and 3 John being whether that's John the Elder, John the Apostle, which again, I still contend is John the Elder, and I do contend they're different, but to each his own. But he also quotes 2 John verse 7. Keep in mind, this is only one surviving epistle of Polycarp as well. We know that he corresponded with Ignatius, which we'll talk about in a second, but his goal isn't to quote as many canonical books as possible. His goal is to address issues in a church and use the authoritative text of Scripture to do it. That's what we see here. All right, so let's jump into Ignatius. I just mentioned him. Again, another early second century martyr uh, who wrote, I believe, seven letters. I know there's more circulating with his name. I do not believe those are authentic. And 
there's intermediate, there's longer versions, there's shorter versions. I do believe some of the intermediates have the potentiality of being correct. Some of the longer editions, I do not. Uh, I think in most circumstances of those letters, it's the shorter or intermediate. Nonetheless, we won't get into that today. He quotes in the sections that are undisputed six times the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, again, and I understand, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a collection between his writings uh, to Smyrna, his letter to Polycarp quotes Matthew. Uh, again, so they're corresponding apostolic documents themselves, quoting the same gospel uh, as Polycarp did. He's quoting the same gospel to Polycarp in a letter. Uh, you have the Philadelphians. Uh, he's writing these letters, he even wrote to Rome. Looking at all of these different letters of Ignatius on the ones that I did alone, just, just the ones that I did, I didn't do all of them. I just did the ones that I did alone, Matthew six times, chapter three, verse 15 on two occasions, chapter eight, verse 17, 10, 16, and 19, 12. And in those letters, he circulated also the gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 39, a direct citation of Luke. And he also quotes John 3, 8. So here's Ignatius. Again, writing to Polycarp to say, well, Polycarp wouldn't have been familiar with John's gospel. Well, Ignatius wrote to, to Polycarp, and Ignatius was aware of John's gospel, enough to quote it in one of the most important passages in John's gospel, claiming that you should be born again. So we see that from Ignatius's writings. Going back to the testimony of Papias at the end of the first century into the second century, who was a hearer of John, he was also a a learner from guys like Aristion and John the Elder, who were followers of Jesus as well, met with Philip and his four daughters, uh, as we've talked about him numerous times. We know he made mention of Matthew and Mark. We have examined his statements thoroughly. We're not going to go back through them. Uh, and he appears to know of Luke because the preface he uses is almost an adoption of Luke's preface using similar wording, in fact, very similar wording to Luke. It seems like he'd have been familiar with Luke's. And, and keep this in mind about Papias. We don't have everything he said. And Eusebius only told us certain sections. He may have had a whole entire, uh, you know, opinion based uh, on Luke's gospel or in John's gospel that we just don't know of. But just based on how he wrote from what we know of him through Eusebius, it would appear that he knew Luke's preface enough to adopt adapt his own to the writing. Uh, and as I stated before, he appears to know John's gospel as well because he uses the same lineup of apostles in the very order they appear in John's gospel. They don't follow any list in the synoptics. And the way they show up on the scene with Andrew and the unknown being John uh, and then Peter and the laying out through Tom, all of those in order, the same exact order, he lists their names. So he was clearly very close. And we've even seen that um, the uh, anti-Marcionite prologue goes so far, even with the Muratorian fragment, some of these testimonies, some of them are even going so far as saying he was a scribe for John. Uh, maybe far-fetched, we don't know, but it would have been clear he was familiar with John. He was a hero of John. The Papias is testifying to the Gospels at the end of the first century as well. Irenaeus, like I said, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, Irenaeus recalls stories that he learned from Polycarp about John the Apostle and circumstances like when he ran into Cerinthian, uh, who started uh, the Cerinthian version of Gnosticism that was permeating the time of the end of the first century when John in his first epistle really combats that 
side of Gnosticism. He tells stories of when they ran into each other at Ephesus. Um, but Irenaeus recalls those things from memory that he learned from Polycarp. But he was a student of Polycarp. And he's got a long statement. This might be hard to read on the screen, but I will read it for you. And he goes so far to not only say there are four Gospels, but he goes on to say there can't be any more or any less. Notice the words of Irenaeus. He says, it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. Now, don't miss that. I underlined it. The Gospels cannot be any more or any less than four. Why? Well, he tells us. Since there are four zones of the world, which we live, and four principal winds, while the church is scattered throughout the world, the pillar and ground of the church is the gospel and the spirit of life. It is fitting that she should have four pillars breathing out immortality on every side, vivifying men afresh. This is what he's saying. The gospel produces life and spirit. And there's four corners of the earth that we were commissioned to go into and bring the gospel to. So if there's four principal winds, four zones of the world, it makes sense that God would institute four pillars on each area of the world to commission his life-giving truth. Now, you may say, this is a little fantasy here on Irenaeus. In some ways, I don't go as full. I mean, he, is he spiritualizing it a little bit? Yeah, I think he spiritualizes some of these verses we're going to look at in a second, but he's on to something. What he's recognizing is we have four. We don't need any more than four. We didn't need less than four. That's what's being recognized in this writing. He goes on to describe a scene from the book of Revelation, which means he was familiar, again, with the book of Revelation, and he wrote uh, commentary of it. We, I wish we had many of the writings that are lost to these men, but we're thankful for at least what we do have. And he says, for the cherubim, too, were four-faced, and they're Faces were images of the dispensation of the Son of God. For as the scripture says, the first living creature was like a lion, symbolizing his effectual working, his leadership, his royal power. The second, a living creature, was like a calf, signifying a sacrificial order. And the third uh, had, as it were, the face of a man, an evident description of his advent of a human being. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Pointing out the gift of the Spirit, hovering over his wings of the church, and therefore the Gospels are in accord with these things among which Christ Jesus is seated. What is he saying? He's saying that if you look at the imagery there, which he uses in the book of Revelation, the lion, the eagle, the man, when you look at these creatures, they're symbolic of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Again, is he spiritualizing? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to show you he recognized in the earliest parts of the second century, in the mid-second century, there were only four Gospels, only four that were ever received as apostolic. And four were enough, not five, not three. Four was everything they needed, and he said it even made sense based on the layout of the world, the Great Commission, and the symbolic nature of the Son of Man seated amongst those beings in the book of Revelation. To me, that's an incredible thought, whether you agree with it or not. He's letting you know the church at that time only had four Gospels. Only had four. This is way before Nicaea. This is almost 200 years before Nicaea. And again, the Miratorian fragment being one of the earliest canonical lists at the end of the second century demonstrated four total gospel accounts. Now, it's a fragment because we don't have all of it. It's cut off and it ends with what Mark has and then goes into describing Luke and John. But most scholars, regardless of where you land, would agree it's describing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And even if you don't think Matthew's name is mentioned and Mark's name was mentioned there, he clearly identifies that there were only four gospels on the earliest canonical list for the fragment. Origin. And this is one I want to continue to repeat on this program. I have done so on probably two or three occasions now. Origen said at the, and he was alive at the end of the second century into the third, as having learned by tradition concerning the four gospels, which alone are unquestionable in the church of God under heaven. What is Origen telling us in the beginning of the third century? He's telling us that the churches are not disputing any gospels that were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Cause he goes in to tell us about the four. He says they're undisputed. They're unquestioned under heaven across the world. There's only four gospels that are being received by the churches. Only four. They didn't have a, a meeting. They didn't have a council. They didn't sit down and pick anything. This is years before Nicaea, over 125 years or so before Nicaea. He is accepting the fact that churches are only taking in four gospel accounts. So then why is there confusion? <laughs> like at the end of the day, you say, okay, where's Nicaea come in here? Well, that's the real question. Why the confusion? I think the confusion comes from two things. Uh, I'm calling it the Voltaire myth, but it's really the Synodacon Vetus uh, myth along with the Voltaire myth. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Okay. And in the comments, I posted an article, and I want you to read this by Dr. John Mead at Phoenix Seminary, a tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, man who... Uh, writes particularly on uh, the Old Testament, uh, that he did some of the hexaplat of Job. Um, he has done a lot of research with Dr. Peter Gurry. Uh, they do a great work out there with the, the text and canon arguments. And he wrote an article that actually really opened my eyes. And I have to give him credit for opening my eyes to this myth because I asked him, I said, why does Nicaea get the, the credit for the the canon. And he sent me his blog. And then we had a discussion about, it. I interviewed him later on when we were uh, city light apologetics interviewed him later on. You can still find that interview uh, on city lights, Facebook page. But one of the things that Dr. Mead, and it's a short article, don't worry, it won't take you long to read it. This information I'm about to share with you is actually something he posted in that blog, uh, in that article. And it's really good because it answers a lot of the questions. And I went in deeper and, and studied some of these things, went behind Dr. Mead and, and found some really interesting stuff from Nicaea. But in the council, this is something that we need to understand about the rumor. This is where it comes from. The source of this idea appears in a late ninth century Greek manuscript now known as the Synodicon Vetus or Vetus, which presents itself as an, now listen, <laughs> it's making itself the standard really of decisions for Greek councils all the way up to the time of its writing. Now, nobody knows the provenance of this or the writer, or we don't have any indicators of where and who and why. It's, it's just a fragment that was survived and it was brought to Morea in the 16th century by Andres Darmisius and was brought, edited, published by John Pappas in 1601, 1601 in Strasbourg. That's all we know about it. And this is what it says in the translation of it. The council made manifest, being the council of Nicaea, made manifest the canonical and apocryphal books in the following manner, placing them by the side of the divine table in the house of God, 
they prayed entreating the Lord that divinely inspired books might be found upon the table and the spurious, spurious ones underneath. And so it happened. Basic layout of what's happening here. He's this, whoever in this document is claiming that that at the Council of Nicaea, they placed two types of books on a table, or as they call it, a divine table in the house of God. And then they prayed and said, Lord, which one of these books belong to you? Which one of these are basically canon? And when they opened their eyes, the ones that were on the floor were non-accepted books. But the ones that still stayed on the table were accepted books. Now, you talk about superstitious and weird. That's weird and superstitious. In fact, when you go to the records of the Council of Nicaea, and you can go through every single one of the canons of the Council of Nicaea, uh, and, and, and perhaps one of you can post that in the comments. If not, I'll go back and I'll, I'll post the canons of Nicaea in the comment section, showing you through all of the canons that they went through, none, none, none mentioned picking books. Th- this is not placed. And numerous people that were at Nicaea wrote, they don't talk about this. What were they dealing with at Nicaea? What was the primary source and purpose of bringing together the council to deal with an issue at Nicaea? Yes, there were biblical matters. Yes, theology was brought to the table. The greatest theology that was being addressed was Arianism. Arianism was coming in and teaching and, and really discrediting the deity of Christ and great debate took place over this issue. The issue was not canon. It was Arianism. And when you look through the canons, they're not saying this book's in, this book's out. They're quoting books of the Bible as authoritative reason to believe the deity of Christ, not debating whether it's the right book. They're debating it and assuming it is the right book. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with choosing our canon. This is an unknown manuscript in the ninth century that's claiming to be really the basis and understanding of Greek councils up to that time. But yet when you study the council, there's no record of this. And the way they said it took place is unorthodox to how they handled issues in Nicaea. We have numerous documents of what took place there. They didn't treat situations like this. But that's not the one that made it popular. The document's the starting point. Who made this popular? Glad you asked. Perhaps you've heard of Voltaire. Voltaire is a troublemaker. Um, He clearly had a bone to pick with scripture. He did like history and he liked other books. And so he looked at this document, examined it, that was brought to Strasbourg. uh, And he had a translation of it. And this is what he had to say about this document. We have already said that in, in the supplement to the Council of Nicaea, It is related that the fathers, being much perplexed to find out which were authentic and which the apocryphal books of the Old and the New Testament laid them upon an altar, and the books that they were rejecting fell to the ground. What a pity that so fine an ordeal has been lost. Here's what Voltaire is saying. Voltaire is upset not about the fact that books were chosen, but the ones that fell, we've lost most of them to history, and he's upset that we don't have those books, and it's only because people didn't like them. And it's only because they wanted to have authentic and separate themselves from those that were considered apocryphal. Again, he's basing his argument on the document we just read to you. No evidence for this at Nicaea. He popularized 
this idea. Now, most people do not realize this, but I have talked to numerous Christians who say, hey, it was Nicaea. It was definitely Nicaea that created this problem. They chose the canon. I've heard Christians say it. I've heard Muslims. I've heard skeptics and atheists. Mormons have said it. The last time I talked to Mormons, they brought Nicaea up. This is a misunderstanding that needs to be corrected. It's not based on the evidence of the writers that were in Nicaea. It's based on whether they know it or not, rumor mills and myths that originated in a late ninth century manuscript we know nothing about and Voltaire popularizing. That's where the rumor came from. I think there's also a second misunderstanding, and that is because Eusebius is so closely connected to Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. And Eusebius, in his book, and I have it with me, the ecclesiastical history, being the history of the church, he has in his writings a section of books, which I think we should talk about. Uh, he has a received and not disputed, or what he calls recognized, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of those are in that. They were never disputed. The Gospels were never disputed. He has another section that I call received but not disputed, but he just called them disputed. But recognizing that the churches still took them as a majority, you could see that they were still accepted as apostolic. And that's 2 John, 3 John, 2 Peter, James, Jude, and Hebrews. Uh, now, to be clear, Hebrews was not disputed until later. It was not disputed early on. Uh, and I have reasons through First Clement to show why that's the case. And it was really only disputed in Rome uh, more than anywhere. And that's because it did not fit their new theology they were bringing in at that time. So keep that in mind. But nonetheless, they were received as a majority on the basis of the churches. But there was a time where there was like, oh, I'm not sure about these letters. I'm not sure it's origin. But they were yet received. But yeah, there was argument. But keep in mind, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never disputed. Origen said it, Eusebius is saying it, we're seeing it used all the time in the early church. Then there were books that were rejected, but they were not seen as heretical. He used the word spurious. Uh, that Books like the Shepherd of Hermas and the Apocalypse of Peter, and like I just showed you, First Clement and, and the Didache and the Epistle of Barnabas, they were not seen as heretical. In fact, the churches adored some of these. The Gospel the Hebrews was well used in the area of Alexandria. Uh, and then he had a, a book that was just considered heretical, or and I put rejected or heretical, Gospel of Thomas, Mary, Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Peter. These were seen as heretical works. They were never uh, accepted into the canonical status. Uh, so when we're talking about these books, we need to recognize these letters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from the time we went through this whole episode, looking at the beginning. Looking at where things are now, they were never around and disputed. Like, I'm not sure if we should quote from that. I'm not sure the origin of they're quoting into scripture, they're calling it scripture, they're using it as documentation for faith-based living in the gospel communities of Christians around the world universally. And I love that's what Origin said. He says, universally, the church under heaven have unquestionably accepted these four gospels. And Irenaeus goes so far as to say, this is brilliant. We need four, no more. No less, we need four. Because in the four Gospels, it meets the criteria of the Great Commission, the four winds. I mean, he goes through this whole parallel there with the apocalypse showing uh, the eagle and the lion and all these things and how each Gospel count actually fits the description of each of those beasts. 
I mean, it's quite incredible what they believed about it. But what they did not believe is that there were other books out there that should have been considered. They didn't. Four undisputed texts. All right. I will take your questions at this point. Um, there's a few in the comment section. Um, and we're going to move forward and take these document these uh, programs into another level. We, we looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to start going through some of my doctoral work of Thomas and Judas and Mary and so forth. We're going to look at some of these other extra biblical accounts. We're going to evaluate them and say, all right, let's put them side by side because we're supposed to believe they're all created equal. All of them should read as authentic and should be taken serious. But we're going to look and see, are they forgeries or not? Because our gospels are being claimed to be forgeries and we walk through all four as to why they're not. If you missed those programs, please go back. Uh, we did two covering Papias and Mark together, uh, two separate ones, uh, both particularly hitting Mark. And then two on Matthew, two on Luke, two on John. We also did a review together of the synoptics with Jonathan Sheffield. And then we picked up here. So we're going to go into the other accounts and we're going to do some comparing and we're going to see which ones are authentic. Also, do not forget in the comments section, I posted a link to Dr. John Mead's uh, article uh, demonstrating some of the things I shared with you today on the rumor mill and the myths, so to speak. Um, one of the things that came up here is the Gospels were written after Paul, though, so this doesn't make any sense. Uh, well, actually, some of Paul's writings would have been after the Gospels. Keep in mind, this goes back to where you date these Gospels. Luke, I believe, was dated around 56 to 57 AD. I did an entire video using just the Muratorian fragment and the Anti-Martianite prologue, giving a place, a timeline, and a circumstance that would have clearly identified, and they're the earliest testimonies giving that kind of information. Just on those two alone, I demonstrated how it was possible for Luke to have written uh, the Gospel of Luke in that time collected his data from the apostolic witnesses just a few years before when he was in Antioch in Jerusalem and how when he was in Greece, he would have been able to pen it down while Paul was writing 2 Corinthians and the book of Romans. So again, make sure that's understood. So to say, okay, well, it, that doesn't make sense to me. I think Paul wrote all of his, then the Gospels are written. What do you do with the passage? And again, not being argumentative, I appreciate the question and suggestion. But if Luke was written after 1 Timothy, why is the writer calling a word-for-word -word phrasing? Okay, let's say you think it's Matthew, you, whether you think it's Matthew or Luke. If they're all after Paul, why is the writer here who's claiming to be Paul quoting a phrase off of the words of Jesus with the words of Moses and the Torah word for word from the Septuagint, word for word from Luke's gospel, and calling them both equal clauses in the Greek, graphe, scripture. How is that possible? Again, I've been pushed back on this in, in, in debates against uh, progressive Christians and Muslims. So, well, that's oral tradition. He didn't say it was oral. He said it was a writing. The scriptures are writings. He is quoting two separate writings that are both categorically and grammatically structured to be scripture. So if it's not Luke, what's he quoting? And where's our evidence to say it's not Luke? Because it fits the description of Luke word for word. 
and it's called scripture and it's consistent with the testimony of the fathers where Paul said that Luke's gospel was his. It's my gospel. He, he authorized it. And that's consistent with the church fathers. That's consistent with how they said Luke's gospel came into existence under Paul's leadership in Greece. We have all of these things to go with that. So I would say the gospels are not written after Paul. Some of them were. I believe First Thessalonians was early. I believe Galatians was early. I believe Philippians was probably a little bit. It just depends on where you put Ephesians and Philippians too. Remember, Paul had different imprisonments. And he wrote many of his imprisonments, some of which at the very end of his life, when he was back in Rome a second time being in prison, this point to death by Nero. That is when I believe the book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus were written, not in the same imprisonment with those that were written like Philippians. I believe they're separate occasions. So if Paul's second imprisonment in Rome, which led to his death by Nero of beheading, would have written 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, probably by an amanuensis, if he would have wrote those letters after the other imprisonments, this would be after Luke's gospel by date. So a uh, good question there. And it's a good thought, but again, I'm giving you my position. And, I, and, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to the other podcast on my reasoning for dating the gospels where I do, the only gospel that would not have been written before Paul is John. But if you'd like to go back, uh, please, please do so looking um, at the different things. Uh, let's see. That's a weird statement by Irenaeus. Well, I, I agree with you, Slam. And that's what I <laughs> that's what I was saying earlier. It's like, okay, is there some spiritualizing here? Sure. Yeah. I uh, but then again, calling revelation scripture is interesting in of itself, or inferring that it's scripture. But then to also bring those things together, it's quite brilliant. Um, is it weird? Uh, is it an odd statement? I agree. I think it is. But at the same time, I don't think it's so odd that we should reject it. There are some interesting perspectives. For example, he says you should go to the four parts of the earth, go to all nations, make disciples to the ends of the earth. Those kinds of instructions were given uh, to the disciples. So having four pillars makes sense. Um, having the different elements of fours with the beasts in Revelation, I would say he's spiritualizing quite a bit there. I agree. But would you also find it interesting that if you study the animals, and again, I cut some of the statement out. The one I gave was long enough. If you study some of the animals that are mentioned there, for example, the humanity side of things being the third beast uh, that is mentioned, that, that of a man. If you look at the description of Luke's gospel being the third gospel that he's using, the parallels are pretty good. And really with the eagle being for John, I find very interesting as well. Lion being the first one for Matthew is incredibly interesting, given the fact that he uh, is being perceived as the root of David. He's the Davidic bloodline, that lion representing that tribe of David, um, going back to Judah. Uh, it, it is it weird? Yeah. Should we say that makes perfect sense? We should go preach a sermon on it on Sunday. I don't know if we should go that far, but it's worth considering. And after all, he was trained from apostolic disciples. So I try to give these guys somewhat of the benefit of doubt if we can. Um, that we know, and then your second comment here, that we know there are four gospels for sure since the beginning. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the, you can't get very far. You can't leave the first century without seeing these gospels um, uh, really showing up on the scene, being quoted the way that we are. 
and thank you for sharing that as well. You put the list of cannons. I appreciate you doing that for me. That saved me some time later. Uh, also, after the video's done, Slam, if you could post it in the after video in the comment section there for those that aren't going to be looking at the live chat, uh, if you could put it in there as well. There's a list of cannons. Read through it. Listen, I mean, word search <laughs> uh, on your computer. You're going to find that to be uh, very interesting. Um, uh, Dan Don Fullman, thank you for your donation. Was the Council of Nicaea a political or religious gathering? Seems to be dated at 325. Uh, it was both. <laughs> uh, we're lying if we say it was only religious. Listen, Constantine didn't pull a council together just to deal with faith-based issues. Constantine was a people pleaser. He, thankfully, I mean, he made life easy for Christianity after his reign, but Really, this council was to deal with Arianism. I, I don't want to belittle that. That was a major issue. But there was definitely political ties that were going on there too. So yes, I, I believe it was both a political and a religious gathering. Um, I do think that more than likely it's going to have more based on the spiritual end of it. But the, the reasoning behind why Constantine would do this would certainly be more than just religious friendships. Uh, uh, he had a political move by his own Christianity, in my opinion. But we are thankful that God used him to bring liberation to some level where God could be worshipped freely. Christ's church could be built. We see corruption come after this, unfortunately. We see the church and the state come together, which brought much of the political agendas within it. Uh, I think it's hard to look at and say that should not have happened. I wish the church has stayed persecuted because how many people would have been martyred in addition to that? I think that it was probably a good move, but we do see from the politicizing of the council moving forward that Rome became very corrupted in its church. In my opinion, I know my Roman Catholic friends would be in here like, Oh wait, commenting right now. That's wrong. That's not true. I do believe some of the politicizing falling away aspects of the church at Rome were post Nicaea and took place as a result of bringing church and state together, so to speak. Uh, and I'm glad I answered your question. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Don. Thank you for your donation as well. If you'd like to partner with us in closing, uh, we do have a Patreon. You can give toward uh, each month. Uh, we had a special going uh, as well, and you can find this on the website. You can go to uh, our website and find videos as well as blogs that are being written. Uh, there is on explaininternational.com a section to be a partner and a Patreon. If you sign up to give $10 a month uh, as a result of following facts, um, I'm going to be doing a sharing of a lot of my material and study material with people. Uh, you would have free access to that if you give a minimum of 15 a month. You not only will get my study material, but once a month after a session of facts, you'll be able to actually do a post meeting with me uh, behind the scenes and ask questions and have discussions in addition to having the material that goes beyond what we have here. So if you're interested in that and you would like to come behind us, we're doing very well. Uh, very thankful for what we have. We are now in Fiji uh, and we're also about to introduce ourselves into the country of Indonesia. Uh, we're very excited about that. That is a new development um, in addition to the countries we're at now with Luxembourg and Germany and England and Malaysia, and the U.S. and Canada and so forth, uh, Philippines. 
so we're really excited about our growth and we're excited about the apprentices that are serving and doing good work, turning in documents, doing videos and interviews. We're really excited about the debates that are coming up as well. If you'd like to partner with us and do that through a Patreon, you can do that on our website at explaininternational.com. Thank you for joining us. Be back next week as we jump into some of these extra biblical gospels. Grace and peace to you.